0: Well, today is the day after Christmas. Uh, in some countries we call this Boxing Day. And the uh, Boxing Day is an uh, English tradition, I guess. Uh, and it was the day after Christmas that was the, ser- the servant's holiday apparently they had to be available to serve on Christmas Day itself, but the day after Christmas, and it's called Boxing Day, I've read. Uh, now, the source on this is something like Wikipedia, so, you know, well, I don't know. But uh, on the day after Christmas, the people who had servants would box up gifts for the servants who also got the day off the day after Christmas. Uh, so that's how it became Boxing Day, uh, and I would imagine the day after Christmas is often, in places where Christmas is celebrated, a a sort of a day. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like a a day where okay, we're we're done now, and we just sort of really relax, and although uh, what I've read about Boxing Day in England is everyone goes shopping on Boxing Day, uh, so that doesn't seem very relaxing to me, but uh, I think in uh, in my own country, it's probably a day where people really finally take a holiday. You know, they really sleep, and because uh, all the hoopla has come to an end and Christmas is a day of big celebration so there's a lot of work actually involved in that big celebration right? And There's a lot of uh, stress leading up to it and finally on the 26th we can relax well this made me think what about Now? What about now? Now that we've had Christmas. Now what? You know, it's, it's uh, I guess, kind of coincidental that Christmas is at the end of the year, and so we say, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. I really like the fact that here in Bonaire, in the Papiamento speaking community, We don't say merry and happy, we say good, and we typically don't say happy new year, we say good new year, and that's different, and we say bon pascu, good pascu, oh, and we say pascu, wow, well that's really different from merry Christmas. Now, I'm not sure anyone pays very much attention to that difference, but it is very different. But all of this got me thinking, what about, what difference does it make that we've had Christmas? You know, every year we sort of wish that it will make a difference. We think, well, we're having Christmas, everyone needs to remember the reason for the season, as we say. In fact, we even succeed in getting people to remember the reason for the season, Everyone wants a meaningful Christmas, not an empty one, even though a lot of the party is pretty empty. But we want, we want it to be real and meaningful. And we say Merry Christmas and Happy New Year as though a Merry Christmas might lead to a Happy New Year. Well, what does it lead to? Now what does it actually make a difference? Does it matter that we have Christmas? And so I came to this expression, but now. I thought, you know what? I'm going to look it up in the Bible, that expression, but now. And especially in the New Testament, but now. And, you know, uh, the most common place where this expression is used is in the Book of Romans, interestingly, where in various spots, three different spots, you have the expression, but now. And then in one more spot, you have just now. Now. And all of these expressions here in the Book of Romans... Are expressions of the difference that it makes that the Son of God arrived on the scene, which is the thing we are celebrating at Christmas. The thing that makes it real and meaningful is the fact that the Eternal One, God Himself, the Son, became a man born as a baby child in Bethlehem. what? Why does that matter? What difference does it make? What difference does Christmas make? So I thought, well, well, let's look at these three statements, four, three statements, four, in the book of Romans that say, but now. Well, the first one is in Romans 3. We just read it a moment ago. Verse 21, we started with verse 20, and in Romans 3, we read, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. You know, in the original text, the apart from the law part comes first, so it really says this, but now apart from law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, Shown, revealed, it can be seen. The righteousness of God can be seen apart from law. You know, the law is one of the ways God has revealed his righteousness. In the law of God, we know what the righteousness of God might look like if human beings could do it. We, uh, he has, in fact, revealed his righteousness In the law. But now, but now, there's another way his righteousness can be seen. Another way it has been revealed. And that way is in the person of Jesus Christ. So that baby (laughs) is an exhibit of the righteousness of God. And of course, like all babies, he didn't remain a baby. He grew into a boy and into a man. And throughout his life, he exhibited the righteousness of God and, in fact, perfectly obeyed the law of God. Now, the other thing we read in this text that we read a moment ago is is this, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. You see, the law isn't, is not, never was, and could not be a path to justification for broken people, for sinful people. It wasn't a way to be justified, and it never was. A way for a person to be counted as righteous by God. No human being, this text says, will be justified in the sight of God by works of the law. But now, righteousness, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And so the righteousness of God becomes available to us. The law reveals the nature of God's righteousness, but it can't make us righteous before God. And the reason for that is because the law can't restore the life of God in us. You know, before sin came into the world, Adam and Eve possessed the very life of God. He breathed his spirit into them, and they were alive in him. And when they sinned, they died, and so did we. And we can't be restored by acting as though we are righteous, because we're not. And so God doesn't count us righteous because we're not. And just if I happen to do something righteous doesn't make me righteous in the sight of God. Well, that's a serious problem because it means I'm broken and I can't be fixed. I certainly cannot fix myself. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested another way in the person of Christ. And the righteousness of God that is manifested in the person of Christ can be communicated to you and to me because the death of Christ has satisfied God's judgment (laughs) against us. That's right here in this text. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. In other words... The Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets told us this was coming. Anyway, he goes on, uh, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Oh, so the, the old way of the Law was a way of sort of deserving it, well, and this text tells us that was never going to happen. And then we read here, now we're justified, that is, counted to be righteous by God as a gift. And you've got to wonder, how does God keep calling himself righteous if he just counts unrighteous people as righteous? Well, that doesn't seem right. Here's how. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward. We didn't put Christ forward. God put Christ forward as a satisfaction, a propitiation by his blood. Now, a propitiation, a satisfaction. That means God's judgment against sin is satisfied by the death of Christ that's what it means god put him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith this was to show god's righteousness Now the righteousness of God manifested apart from the law in Christ and communicated to us when received by faith on the basis of the satisfaction of the blood of Christ, the satisfaction of God's judgment. So this was to show God's righteousness because in the old days, in his divine forbearance, he passed over the old sins looking forward to the sacrifice of Christ, and in our day, it shows his righteousness in the present time so that he might be just, that is, righteous himself, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How does God call me righteous and stay righteous He's just and he stays just while justifying me because his judgment is satisfied by the blood of Christ. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. If there's no Christmas, if there's no incarnation of the Son of God as a man, then there's no satisfaction for sin And I am as dead as I ever was, irretrievable, because the law provides no path for me to regain fellowship with God, for me to be considered righteous by God, acceptable to God. But because Christ came, Christ died, Christ satisfied God on my behalf, and I now can be deemed righteous and receive this amazing gift just by receiving it, just by trusting that it's true, by giving myself to this reality. That's the difference that Christmas makes. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Now, if you read on in the book of Romans, chapter 4 and 5 is really mostly an argument for how this is received just by faith, just by faith, just by faith. And then you come to Romans chapter 6, and Paul says, Oh, well, so if grace abounds where sin abounds, maybe we would sin so that there'd be more grace. He's proposing this argument that us sinners are going to come up with because we kind of like sinning. So, because we're crazy and because we have this sinful insanity, when God offers us grace, we might worry that we will take undue advantage. And since God has declared me to be righteous, maybe I can continue to live unrighteously. And Paul says to that, that is the stupidest thing I have ever heard. That's what he says. You can read it for yourself. That's Romans 6. He says, by no means. Here's a translation of that. That is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And then in Romans 6, he makes the argument from grace to grace. He doesn't say, look, if you sin, the law will come back on you. He never says that. Because it won't, and it can't. He doesn't say God will reimpose his law if you take this undue advantage. He says, no, because of grace, it is supremely foolish to take that advantage. It's not an advantage. And so, in chapter 6, we read this. But now, this is in verse 22 of Romans 6. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, and you have received the fruit that leads to sanctification, and you have received the goal, which is eternal life. Now you've been freed from sin and enslaved, in a manner of speaking, he says, to God, and now you have your fruit to holiness, and now you have the prize, eternal life. Now, if we go back in the earlier part of Romans 6, we read this, in Christ, you died. So there's some way that God united us to Christ even before we existed. And in the death of Christ, I died because I was in Christ. This is what he says in Romans chapter 6. There's a mystical union between all believers and Christ that goes back to the, before the beginning of creation but is certainly present in the death of Christ. And so he says, you are united with Christ in his death. So you are dead to sin. So in verse 11 of Romans 6, he says, consider yourselves, reckon with the fact that you died to sin. You are dead to sin. What that means is sin isn't your king anymore. As it once was. Sin is not your slave master like it was. You are not uh, owned by sin anymore. If you are in Christ, you died in Christ to sin. And in Christ you are raised, he says. This is in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 6. Because you died in Christ, you also were raised in Christ, and so you are alive to God in Christ. In chapter 7, he's going to make this argument about how this releases us from the law. We'll get to that in a minute. But in Christ, you died. So when God, when Christ died for you, your sins were punished. You died in Christ. You've been raised with Christ. You've been brought from death to life, he says in verse 13. And your members, that's a funny word. Your members, that means the things that make, you up, make up who you are. Your body, your mind, your soul. Your members have been given to God as instruments of righteousness. Christ, when he died and rose again, Got a hold of you if you have put your faith in him. Got a hold of you, you are in him and you rose and you have been presented to God as an instrument of his righteousness. Oh, so this revelation of the righteousness of God that is manifested in the life of Jesus is also manifested in your life. You used to be slaves of sin, he says, but now you've become obedient from the heart. Now, this ought to remind any uh, faithful Jewish person like Paul was. I think he means to remind us of this, that obedient from the heart is the promise of the new covenant of the Old Testament, that Old Testament promise from Ezekiel and Jeremiah of the new covenant in which God would write his law on our hearts. And we would become obedient from the heart. And in this way, slaves, and I I need to put slaves in air quotes here, because slavery is not slavery like it used to be. Slaves of righteousness, slaves of God. Slaves of God is means something like alive as opposed to dead. The slavery of sin is a slavery unto death. The slavery to God is an opportunity to live and to live out the righteousness that has already been credited to me. And why on earth would you want to miss out on that? So I've been transformed. I no longer live under the burden of God's righteousness. I now have God's righteousness implanted in me. And so I become obedient from the heart, slaves of God. The law is not, never was, and could not be a path to justification We can read about this in in Romans 8, where in verse 3, and we're going to come back to this in a minute, the, the book of Romans, Paul writes, God did what the law could not do in Christ. He did. And so in Christ, there is a path to righteousness. Unrighteousness, sin, is insanity. And so his argument in the book of Romans is not to say, well, if you take this option of sinning in the face of grace, God will punish you according to the law anyway. He doesn't say that. He says quite the opposite of that. He says because you've been released from the law, you're no longer a slave to sin. And so you have the opportunity to actually live obediently from the heart. So take advantage of the opportunity. And he gives us, he presents us with his choice. He says, so present yourself to God as an instrument of righteousness and don't present yourself to sin as an instrument of sin or unrighteousness because whoever you present yourself to, that's whose slave you are. So in Christ now, I, am the, I have the opportunity of righteous, alive slavery. But now you've been freed from sin and enslaved, in a manner of speaking, to God. Now you have your fruit to holiness. Now you have the prize, eternal life. And this changes everything. And if there's no Christmas there's no freedom from the slavery of sin if the if the son of god doesn't become the man jesus that baby born and placed in a manger if the man if the son of god doesn't become the man and doesn't live the, the righteous life that he lived and doesn't die for my sins and yours and isn't raised and doesn't ascend and isn't there to intercede for me then i am dead in my trespasses and sins, without any hope of recovery. But he did come, and because there was Christmas, there is freedom from sin. That's the difference that Christmas makes. In chapter 7, then, we read this in verse 6. and You know, chapter 7 of Romans is a famous text because it helps us because Paul sympathizes with our life in the, in the now and not yet time that we live in. In the time in which I'm redeemed and still broken. In the time in which I'm resurrected but still going to die. In the time in which I still am burdened by the, by the spirit of independence from God. I'm still the guy who can ask the question at the beginning of Romans 6, so I can get away with sin then, huh? That question idea still appeals to me. I still like sin. I still like, I'll manage my own life, thanks God. That spirit of independence And so in Romans 7, Paul talks about that and about how the law activates sin in us, actually. But he begins chapter 7 with this. He says, but now we are released from the law. That's in verse 6 of Romans 7. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve... In a new way, the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. We've been released from the written code imposed on us, and we now have life in the Spirit. He says, You died to the law through the body of Christ. Now, he's really kind of repeating the same argument he made in chapter 6. Here he uses the metaphor of a spouse. So he says, as long as you, when you're married, as long as your spouse lives, you're bound to your spouse. But if they die, you're free. And he says, well, in this way, who died? Well, I did, actually. So I get a divorce from the law. That's kind of the idea. The, I died to the law through the body of Christ so that I can belong to another. To him who was raised in order to bear fruit for God. That's Romans 7.4. And so we come to serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the law. Now in the rest of chapter 7 Goes on to talk about how sin is still around and still seeking to captivate us, and we're still captivatable, and in fact, we still sin and can't seem to help ourselves. Well, that's kind of the point. We can't help ourselves. But now we're released from the burden of the law by the the birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, intercession of the Lord Jesus. And if he isn't born, none of this happens. And at the end of chapter 7, when he's dealing with this frustration of living in the present condition, in the flesh, in the with the battle between the spirit in us and the and our independent spirit that is the definition of sin living in independence from god we're in this battle and it's very frustrating and at the end of this discussion he says Who can save me? Who can save me? And the last verse of Romans 7 says, Thanks be to God. I'll just read it here. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but in my flesh I serve the law of sin. The, the question in verse 24, who will deliver me from this body of death? The answer is thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the first verse of Romans 8 is, there is therefore now, 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 no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so we are saved from this body of death. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Has set you free. Not might, not could, not maybe will. Has set you free. For God has done. I didn't do it, you didn't do it, God did it. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Because you see, the law comes in and makes me want to sin. Well, it doesn't make me. I'm built for sin. I operate independently from God. So when I hear what God's righteousness demands, I... The desire to rebel against it is inspired in me. That's what Romans 7 says. Well, what's going to save me from this? God is. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. How? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Well, that expression, by sending his own son, Christmas, by sending his own son, he delivers us from the condemnation of the law because he condemned sin in the flesh, in the person of Jesus. And so he is satisfied. His judgment is satisfied. And this opens up life to us when we were dead. Wow. In order that the righteousness requir- the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, most of the rest of... Romans 8 is about what that means, life in the Spirit. What does the Spirit do? The Spirit sets us free in Christ from the law of sin and death. The Spirit dwells in us. Because the Spirit dwells in us, we belong to Christ. And Christ is in us by the person of the Spirit being in us. Uh, In verse 10 of chapter 8, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. The righteousness of God has come to dwell in me. The Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, in verse 11, dwells in you and gives life to your mortal bodies. You see, God is replicating in us the very life of his Son. Wow. He says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh then by the Spirit you live. Oh, so if, you're, if you die by the Spirit, you live by the Spirit. This reminds me of what Jesus said, whoever clings to his life loses it, and whoever lets it go finds it. He says in verse 14, the sons of God are led by the... way." what? The sons of God... Not son, sons. And you are his sons because the Spirit indwells you because of your faith in Christ. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit in verse 16 that we are children of God. If there's no baby in the manger, there's none of this. None of this. And we remain dead in our trespasses and sins. The Spirit, in verse 26, helps us in our weakness because we don't know how to pray. And so the Spirit prays and intercedes for us in groanings beyond words, the text says. In, the Spirit has a communion and a communication with the Father God that is past words, is deeper than Words and he communicates my heart to the Father's heart in a way that I cannot even conceive. And so the Father who searches the hearts knows the Spirit, and in knowing the Spirit, knows me. It's amazing. The Spirit intercedes for the saints according to God. So my prayers are ill-informed and unwise, and I really don't know what I'm doing. But whenever I'm praying, the Spirit's praying. Even when I'm not praying, the Spirit is interceding for me before God. So my heart is poured out before the Father, even when I don't necessarily even want it to be. And if there's no baby in the manger in Bethlehem none of this happens. It makes all the difference. And then you know at the end of chapter 8 this great text all things work together this follows this the <laughs> this follows the statement of the intercession of the spirit as though this is God's response to the prayer of the Spirit for me. He says, all things work together for the good of those who love God. Those who are called according to his purpose. Those are just ways of saying those who are in Christ. And so we read this great text. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. If you wanted to know what is the good that God is working through all things, that is it, that we would be conformed to the image of his Son, that the very life of the Son of God made flesh would become who we are. that the life of Christ would be replicated in the life of the believer in Christ. Well, this is inevitable. It is what God is doing. And so he says, predestined, called, justified, glorified, all of those things add up to conformed to the image of his son. He goes on, in him we inherit everything. <laughs> if God gave his, his son, will he withhold anything else? The answer is no. In him we are inseparably connected to the love of Christ. That's what the rest of this text says. What shall we say then? If God's for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us with him all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? God who justifies who's going to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us oh so it's not just the spirit but the son it's a team effort does the father say no Did the team prayer of the Son and the Spirit? No. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. I mean, the scripture says, for your sake, we're being killed all day long. We're regarded like sheep to the slaughter. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. If they kill you, you win. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things, honor, uh, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. This is the difference that Christmas makes. This is why, having celebrated the birth of our Savior, the incarnation of the Eternal One, we should be transformed in the new year. We can live in the advantages we have just discussed. And we are foolish if we don't. Romans 3.26, he's the justifier, and he's just. He's the justifier of who? The one who has faith in Jesus. Here in uh, Bonaire, we say Bon Pascu, which is a very curious thing to say at Christmas because Pascu is the word for Passover. Well, Christmas isn't Passover, is it? Yes it is. And you know this word Pascu in Papimento we use it for the whole story. From the birth of Christ to the Passover death of Christ to the Pascu the resurrection, the to the Easter resurrection of Christ. And so when we say Bon Pascu we are saying a mouthful it is a huge thing to notice that in the incarnation, the gift of life is wrapped. And in the life of Christ and in our faith, we simply unwrap the gift. So we say, Bon Pascu, good Passover, good Christmas good incarnation, good Passover, good resurrection, good intercession, good second coming. On that day when we will see him and we will be like him because we will see him as he is face to face. It will be transforming and we will experience the full delivery of our salvation in him. Bon pascu. Now, things have changed because Christ has come. And so when we think about the day after Christmas and we're asking ourselves, now what? This is the answer, apart from the law, the righteousness of God is manifested in Christ and in his people. Let us live this life we've been given. Father, we thank you for your grace toward us in Christ. Lord, it's overwhelming. We don't really get it, but Lord, we pray that by the ministry of the Spirit in our hearts, we would receive this testimony that we are the sons of God, that we have the life of Christ in us, that we have been credited with his righteousness and now have the opportunity to live in it. So, Lord, we do, by faith in Christ, present ourselves to you, a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, our only reasonable service of worship. And we give you thanks in Christ and by his Spirit. Amen.